Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Harty School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschemann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about grand strategy. U.S. President Joe Biden, in his first foreign policy speech, repeatedly referred to the present as this new moment. What he meant was, and I quote, advancing authoritarianism and accelerating global challenges from the pandemic to the climate crisis to nuclear proliferation. In a chaotic moment like this, historians Maeve Ryan and Andrew Earhart argue, grand strategy is indispensable. Political scientists Daniel Dresner, Ronald Krebs, and Randall Schweller disagree. In a world of disorder, they say, grand strategy does not work well. It might even be dangerous. That's why I called Stacy Goddard, professor of political science at Wellesley College and director of the Madeleine Corporal Albright Institute for Global Affairs. Her research focuses on international order, grand strategy, and global power politics. Stacy and I discuss grand strategy successes and failures, why talk isn't cheap, how a Cold War 2.0 between the United States and China could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and how to avoid that, why the United States should not over-rely on its military, and, not entirely unrelated, 1990s nostalgia. Now, I'm excited to welcome Stacy Goddard as our February guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Stacy. Hi, how are you doing, Katerina? I'm great, thank you. Before we talk strategy, I hear you like hiking. What are your favorite backpacking spots and what essential items do you always bring? Oh, I have a couple of favorite backpacking spots. Uh, my husband's from Northern California. So anytime we can get out there in Yosemite National Park or anywhere in the Sierra Mountains is really just great. But right now I have two elementary school age kids and I've been introducing them to backpacking. So we do just a lot um, in our backyard over in Mount Greylock in Western Massachusetts. Um, essential items. I'm always somebody who likes to bring a bit of a dessert for the kids. So they'll, you'll find s'mores or some sort of dehydrated ice cream sandwich. And then if I'm going to really get confessional on you, I've gotten to tucking a beer into my water reservoir so I can just kind of curl up at night and, and feel really like I've accomplished something for the day. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, this is the Berlin security beat. So I got to ask you, what song do you think best describes the current state of the world? So I'm going to go old school back to my 1980s, 1990s roots and say it's got to be REMs. It's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. And I think it's that last part we really need to hold on to so we don't get too nihilistic in this moment. I love that you said that because A, I feel you and B, you won't <laughs> believe it. The guest we had last month said the exact same thing. So it's got to be something about REM. It's having a revival. It really should have a revival. It really does capture the moment. So, <laughs> The new U.S. administration under President Joe Biden faces enormous challenges at home and abroad. In response to these challenges, experts like defense consultant Scott Lawless have called for a revitalization of American grand strategy. What is grand strategy? I think that's a really good question. And one thing I want to say is there's a lot of contestation around what that term really means. It, to my mind, what grand strategy is, is it's 
it's going to sound kind of strange, but it's a story, right? Barry Posen calls it a theory of how a state secures itself. And what I would say is we can turn that into a story about how a state secures itself. So within the story, there are a few different elements. There's a story about who a political community is, um, what it wants, what its interests are. So what exactly is the United States and, and what types of interests does the United States have? You know, that the hokey one would be, you know, the United States wants to preserve its democracy. Uh, second is the story about means. So what means does a state have to pursue those ends and those interests? Military power, economic power, diplomatic power. And then finally, what are threats to those types of interests, right? And those threats can be other states and great powers. They can be non-state actors. They can, as I'm sure we all realize now, be disease and pandemics and economic insecurity. So that's really a broad spectrum of threats. That helps. I read in your work that legitimacy plays an important role. Can you maybe explain what role legitimacy plays? So legitimation and legitimacy play a really integral role at every single step of grand strategy. There's always going to be some sort of existing narrative out there that tells you what types of ends and interests are legitimate, right? It would not be legitimate, for example, for the United States to say it wants to pursue a formal empire. And we can talk about informal imperialism and hierarchy, but a formal empire, that's not going to be something that falls into the realm of legitimate grand strategy. It also plays into the definition of means. What types of legitimate means do you have? So in theory, a state can use myriad instruments to pursue its goals. But in reality, when policymakers come to the table, they're going to be circumscribed by what they understand to be legitimate means, right? So is warfare, for example, legitimate means? Well, arguably now in the current age, it's only legitimate under really particular circumstances, oftentimes defined in terms of self-defense. And finally, legitimacy is incredibly important when it comes to mobilizing support for a grand strategy. Grand strategy doesn't just happen on its own. One needs to actually be able to get resources both domestically as well as abroad from allies and partners. And to do that, you need to be able to tell a story about the purpose of grand strategy. Why are you doing it? And those reasons really need to be able to resonate with those audiences. So maybe you can tell us about some successful grand strategies and some grand strategy failures. Yeah, I think I can think of a few. And I'll do one going back to the 1990s, since that can be a theme today, along with REM, and then one a little more present. So in thinking about one going back, I did some recent research about NATO expansion. And one of the things you notice is there were lots of policy options on the tables in the 1990s in terms of what the United States was going to do with its institutions. And one that looked like it should have been a leading contender was something called Partnership for Peace. And this would have been rather than expanding NATO immediately. This would have been a strategy that would have brought Eastern European countries, the former Soviet Union, and even Russia itself into a collective security fold. And it would have existed aside from NATO. And that actually, it looked like a really promising political bargain. Uh, there was a lot of policymakers in Washington, D.C. on board. Russia even expressed its interest in this idea. But eventually, it ended up really getting pushed off the table by those that said that wasn't a legitimate policy option. And the reason they said it wasn't legitimate is some people managed to basically frame this as you're just redrawing the Iron Curtain again. You need to let in Central European, Eastern European states. Or if you're not, you're violating your own liberal principles by denying them interest into NATO. So that's one example where a policy option was really delegitimated because of this rhetoric. 
A more contemporary example, and I bring this up because I actually think this is something that that continues to be relevant, is about how it is the United States can legitimate its continued investment in a liberal international order. I think one thing the United States has struggled with is an understanding or what I would almost say is a counter movement against the liberal international order that claims that the liberal international order doesn't serve United States national interests. Can you maybe summarize what you think makes up the liberal international order? Because it's a big word. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. So when I at least say the liberal international order, I'm speaking about a series of rules and institutions, formal and informal, that are designed, at least in theory, I'm not saying in practice, to advance a liberal agenda. And it basically does so, and again, its commitments are both in terms of substance and process, right? So substantively, these are institutions that are committed to advancing liberal principles such as human rights, free trade, and democratic principles. Procedurally, these institutions, again, are at least in theory, committed to operating as liberal institutions. So operating in terms of consensus, operating in terms of votes, attempting to actually uh, build policy outcomes without relying on the mechanisms of coercion, for example. So now, do you think with the new administration, U.S. grant strategy is bound to change? I think it has to change. And I think it has to change in a couple of different respects. So first of all, I do expect to see a foreign policy that's much different from the Trump administration. To begin with, I think we need to hone back in on this, what the concept of grand strategy is, which is this well-defined ends and an idea of the types of means that one is going to use to achieve them. I don't think that the Trump administration had particularly well-defined ends. Aside from an idea that the United States needed to be transactional in its relationships, that in every single individual interaction that it engaged in, it needed to make sure it was somehow winning. That's not a strategy, right? That doesn't tell you some sort of long-term end. So, And I don't think the Biden administration thinks that way. I think that they do think in terms of... United States abiding interests. I do think that, you know, that's not entirely defined in terms of lofty liberal goals. I do think some of that is defined in terms of preserving a certain amount of American influence and power. Uh, but I do think the Biden administration has a much longer term idea of what those interests are. And I also think that in terms of the means... The Biden administration, maybe this is optimistic and hopeful, is going to be different than the Trump administration in seeing the wide array of instruments that it has at its disposal. I got to ask, I read that the magazine Foreign Affairs, they had a survey, asked the experts, should the U.S. focus on great power competition? And there was disagreement among the experts whether they should or they shouldn't. But they did agree on one thing, and that was that the U.S. was over-relying on military power. You were one of the experts they asked. Maybe you can tell us your take and then explain that agreement among the experts. So first of all, in terms of thinking about great power competition, and I was one of the people who said the United States should focus on it, but I think it's really important to understand that great power competition is not an end in and of itself. So I think when there was a lot of agreement by focusing on great power competition, what it is is that the United States shouldn't pursue great power competition as an end, but it should understand that whatever interests that it wants to pursue, it's now doing so in a world where it has to actually recognize and deal with the fact that there are other states with other interests, not just China and Russia, which obviously have other states and are contentious. Um, but also, I think it's pretty clear that Europe has different interests that diverge from the United States. And this just simply isn't a case where the United States can assume that Europe is going to go along with it. So again, it's just to understand that the environment has changed. But why the consensus on military power? 
I think the thing to keep in mind is that every single person who is asked to respond to that thinks that military power is important. Nobody would be arguing that military power doesn't play a role. But I think where a lot of us stand is that the United States already has an overwhelming advantage in military power. And that for the most part, we think that we're in a fairly stable deterrent situation. And that is to say that most of the actors involved in great power military competition, the United States, China, and Russia in particular, understand that major power war would be catastrophic and they're not looking to engage in that at any point. So for the United States in particular, there are marginal returns to investing in its military power. In other words, how much more is the United States going to get from investing in its aircraft carrier fleet, from making sure it has the shiniest and newest nuclear weapons? The argument there is not much. But what the United States has allowed itself to do is let its other instruments of power atrophy. The United States during the Trump administration stopped having a functioning State Department. It cleared its benches over there. The United States needs to be thinking much more carefully about how it's going to use things like its Department of Treasury, which has become a major player ever since the Obama administration. So that's what we're saying is like there are all these other instruments. They are as important, if not more, in great power competition. And that's where the investments need to be. You were mentioning rising powers. So obviously, we got to talk China. You said in a piece for the monkey cage that China might indeed be pursuing far ranging changes to the international status quo in the not so distant future. And that you think ironically, this could be because and not in spite of China's membership in international institutions. Can you maybe explain what you meant by that? So that piece uh, drew on some larger research I have about uh, revisionist states and international politics. And to be clear, when I say revisionist states, I don't necessarily mean aggressive states or states that are looking to start a war. It's basically just states that are interested in changing the status quo in whole and apart. So in China's case, this is a question of whether or not, to the extent to which China is interested in changing the rules and the norms that underpin this liberal international order. And what the piece was really trying to do was push back against a robust and existing literature that argued that because China was increasingly integrated into these institutions of the liberal international order, it was more likely to be constrained by them. So the fact that, you know, over the last couple of decades, China entered into the World Trade Organization, for example, um, became much more um, a robust partner in other institutions that therefore it was basically going to follow the rules. And my argument was that the more central China became to this order, the more it would actually be able to use some of these rules and its norms to its own benefit. And combined with this, the fact that China is also building institutions outside of the liberal international order. For example? The, the Belt and Road Initiative is the big one. The types of diplomatic and institutional networks uh, that are being built through that large infrastructure project. And again, it's in nascent stages. I don't want to overstate what the BRI is, but I think this is the type of example of new networks that China is laying down. The more resources that China has, the more partnerships it has, the more it's able to mobilize and pull from these networks and set out its own agenda. We saw, I think, arguably a little bit of this in China's positioning itself within the WHO after the COVID pandemic, right? Especially as the United States began to pull back from that organization, China began to say, look, we're, we're a power player with this. Maybe we'll use these resources to build our own narrative about the COVID pandemic. Well, maybe we'll use this to become a provider of common goods in and of our 
own, right? So we see this type of narrative and, and type of movement as China begins to talk about what it might do with its own infrastructure. I mean, on the one hand, it claims that things like BRI are consistent with the liberal order. On the other hand, it also claims that it's developing a, a, a series of economic institutions that are not going to be conditional on things like human rights violations and things like this, right? So it's both competitive and complementary. So now you've laid out a few of the sometimes diverging claims from China, and you're an expert on signals, on rhetoric. What do we make of those? How do we assess China? So I think what's interesting about China is, for the most part, China's rhetoric still shows a commitment to operating within the rules and institutions of the liberal international order to a point, right? So certainly we haven't seen any sort of departure in terms of the rhetoric of a liberal economic order. Uh, we still see a rhetoric of a responsible leadership within existing institutions. We also, and I think particularly under President Xi, we've seen a movement towards a more nationalist rhetoric. Um, and some of the rhetoric that I find particularly interesting is the movement towards a rhetoric that I would argue is designed to mobilize and appeal to the global South and other political communities that have been left marginal to the liberal international order. And we understand that there is a fair amount of dissatisfaction with certain institutions of the liberal international order from the global South. And, and I would argue rightfully so. I think that uh, China has been right to point out that some of the states, um, such as Pakistan, that have been incorporated into the BRI have been spaces where the United States and its allies have primarily treated it as a question of military issues and security rather than thinking about this as economic and social issues. Interesting. And then I read that you're concerned that the United States caught in an institutionally vulnerable position might not only react, but overreact to China's rhetoric. What do you mean by that? Unfortunately, I think that we're already seeing it in a lot of circumstances. So it's not surprising that China would adopt rhetoric that is inconsistent with the liberal international order in order to attempt to mobilize states that are outside of it, or even more importantly, in order to appeal to its own population. The CCP, I think it's gotten consistently stronger under Xi, but it sees its own vulnerabilities. So it's not surprising when we hear a more nationalist rhetoric, a rhetoric of self-sufficiency, a rhetoric of great power competition. A lot of this is aimed at a home population. But what we see, and we've seen it in the United States Congress, among people like Senator Rubio, we're seeing this increasingly in the policy community, is the idea that somehow this is a fully-fledged counter-liberal international order agenda. I don't think that's the case. You think it's a rhetoric trap, the overreaction you're seeing? You think that's putting us on a self-fulfilling prophecy of conflict? Absolutely. This is the unfortunate about grand strategy, is that there really needs to be some sort of balancing line between understanding that one is going to be engaging in contestation, and one might even be engaged in great power competition. But one doesn't need to turn that into some sort of existential threat in order to mobilize resources or engage in that competition. 
that you can actually identify that there is contestation against your interests, that one might need to be competitive without turning this into a Cold War number two. And that's my concern, is that interplay that certain actors in the United States and outside hear the rhetoric and then begin to turn this into yet another ideological battle. I see. And you said that's partially a problem with some grand strategic thinking. Professors Daniel Dresner, Ronald Krebs, and Randall Schweller argue in the magazine Foreign Affairs, grand strategy is dead. And they say that rather than quarrel over contending strategic doctrines, academics, pundits, think tankers, and policymakers should focus more on pragmatic forms of problem solving. So more case by case, they say it's time to think small. What do you think? So the first thing I have to say is, you know, all three of these scholars are friends and people I like and admire and respect a lot. And I think they're wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and my co-author, Ron Krebs, listens to this. I think he's wrong. Um, so why do I think they're wrong? I think in many ways what they've done is they set up a little bit of a straw man with grand strategy. And what their real target is, is not grand strategy per se, but inflexible ideological grand strategy. What I don't understand about their argument is they want to do things on a case-by-case -case basis and just be pragmatic. Well, that's wonderful. How do you decide what cases are worth taking up without having a larger idea about what matters? So, for example, they talk about corporations. Their big comparison is corporations don't have big grand strategies. They delegate. They put things into middle management, and that's how things happen. Well, that's true to an extent. But corporations understand what their job is. They have a mission. They understand what the threats are. That's the same way the United States needs to be, or I think any state needs to be. You need to have some sort of core idea about what your mission is and the ends you're pursuing. That's what grounds you in being able to decide what type of project should you approve? What type of conflict should warrant an intervention, right? You can't just do that case by case. You need to have some sort of baseline measure to evaluate that. And based on that, what would you say are the policy implications? That's a really good question. So I think the policy implications is how to build a grand strategy that focuses on a national interest, but to be clear, not necessarily a nationalist interest. And what do I mean by that? To focus on a national interest is not to say that it needs to be the United States as an exceptional nation, the United States as a domineering nation. I do think that the United States can step back. And again, this is going to sound, I think, extremely cheesy and say, ultimately, the United States grand strategy was always supposed to be about what steps do you take in international relation to preserve democracy and not promote democracy abroad, but to preserve democracy for itself and for its allies and partners. That does not necessarily mean you need to exclude any other state with a different regime because you've decided you don't like them. You cooperate with China on climate change. Why? Because that's actually good for your democracy. You cooperate with Russia on arms control because it's good for your democracy not to have to go through trillions of dollars of nuclear modernization. So that preserves your democracy without fighting with the authoritarian states. But if you kind of center that as your end, then you can begin to do the case-by-case -case analysis. So I have one last question. My reading list seems to be ever-growing during lockdown, and uh, <laughs> I'd imagine yours too. So I'm curious, what's on top of your reading list so I can add it to mine? Okay. Can I give you two? 
without you hating me for that? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. The book that I am reading for my learning as I'm going along, it's the Lakota Empire. And it's about interactions between the Lakota in the United States. And what's particularly interesting for me is it situates the relationships, particularly in the first part of the book, with the British Empire, the French Empire, the Spanish Empire, and then eventually the United States. And I think what's just fascinating about this is we as international relations scholars, I think we have been awful about treating indigenous tribes as their own political communities and understanding the ways in which they were bargaining in this imperial space. And this book just gets right to that. And for an international relations theorist, it's a great read, but it's outside of my normal study. And so it's fun. Time to check out Joyce. Uh, the Glass Hotel by Emily St. Mandel. Some people might have read her book Station Eleven, which is actually about a global pandemic. You might not want to pick that one up now. But The Glass Hotel kind of takes us back to the 2008 financial crisis, but through the eyes of some really fascinating characters. So it's not kind of just taking you through the mechanics of the crisis. It really gives you this type of very personal and almost absurd story about what happens in the midst of this. So just a really, really good read. Thank you very much. And thank you for doing this. Of course. Of course. This is wonderful. Thank you for having me on. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. You liked what you heard? Subscribe, review and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month.